Hey everyone, before we get to today's content, I wanted to tell you about a brand new podcast from the 11FS Podcast Network, the FinTech Marketing Podcast hosted by me, Eric Fulweiler, Chief Marketing Officer of 11FS. Over the last couple months, I've been speaking to heads of marketing from the world's leading FinTech and financial service brands, Monzo, Revolut, MasterCard, Zero, Starling, Lemonade, and many more. We heard their insights and ideas on how they build brand and drive growth for their businesses, and now we can bring them to you. So if you're into FinTech, FS, marketing, which I assume you are, uh, please check out our brand new podcast. Search for FinTech Marketing Podcast on any podcast platform. Subscribe, share, leave us a review, and please do let us know your thoughts. Appreciate the support. From 11FS, I'm Sam Mall, and this is FinTech Insider News. This week, we bring you new stimulus funding passes through Congress. Mark Cuban outlines his COVID investment strategy and is Shake Shack a small business? All this and much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 421 of FinTech Insider in day 5099 of the COVID lockdown. I'm Sam Mall. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Simon Taylor. How are you doing, Simon? Sam, right now I'm hungry because you said Shake Shack in the open, and I've not had a burger in far too long, so I think that's going to be what's for dinner this evening. Uh, How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. How many Pepsi Max have you down today? I'm just on nine. Um, So, you know, (laughs) nine cans, keeping it it even keel. Hey, and we need the energy. There's a lot of fintech news going on right now and lots to get through. Yeah, well, we're still practicing our social distancing. I'm in Jacksonville, Florida, um, not on the beach, everybody. And as always, we're all remotely dialed in. Simon, where are you? You're in somewhere in London, I'm assuming. Yeah, Sonny Romford, uh, represent the uh, the uh, East End. So yeah, living the dream, one one sunny day at the time. It, it, the cruelest thing ever is to live in the UK and it'd be sunny outside and you'd not really be able to go out and enjoy it. That is the most British thing I think that's ever happened. <laughs> that's so true. As always, we're joined, in this case, remotely by awesome guests making their FinTech Insider News debut. We have Lance Homer. He's the Global Head of Digital Payments and Banking Ecosystem at Equinix. How are you, Lance? Great, Sam. Thanks for having me on the show today. And we also have Adrian Blair, who's a CEO at Receipt Bank. Hey, Adrian, how are you? Very good, thank you. Good to meet. And I, I want to compliment Adrian on outside of Anna having the best hair in this group. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. Making a welcome return visit, we have my good friend, Anna Irera, FinTech correspondent and financial news team leader at Reuters. How are you, Anna? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. I wish you folks could see this because Anna's in her baby's bedroom as we record this. That's okay. I'm in my daughter's uh, bedroom too because that's my router is. That's life. I don't know what else to say. All right. With that, let's jump right in. Um, we can't avoid talking about COVID-19 or Corona. So we're going to start with the biggest news-related story of the week, dig deep into them, and then we'll get those out of the way and move on to other news in the industry that isn't directly related to the pandemic. So let's go ahead and jump into our first story. And it's here about in the U.S. And it's all about the stimulus funding and what Congress and our government is trying to do. So a story is from Bloomberg. At the start of this recording, the House is expected to pass a $484 billion package to aid in coronavirus relief. This will be the second tranche that the government will provide. Including in the bill is $320 billion top-up for the Paycheck Protection Program, known as PPP, 
which helps small businesses keep workers on the payrolls. The new legislation follows a $2 trillion relief fund that passed last month. Attention now turns to the next round of stimulus packages. The funding will go apparently to infrastructure funding for state and local governments. The Treasury Secretary Steve Munchen refused to put a dollar figure on the next stimulus package, but state governors are calling for $500 billion in relief. Easily, we're going to, I think, tip over $1 trillion at some point. Um, folks, <laughs> um, we're living through exponential times. I think that's safe to say. Um, uh, I, Anna, I'll ask you, um, do you think we'll get this passed today? President will sign this tomorrow. How soon do you think we'll get this actually done? I'm not actually sure. I think there's obviously an incentive now to get uh, this passed quickly. I don't know if there. Obviously, like the, the first time round, there were there were there, there's always considerations as to you know what what goes in, into these these packages and, and what the conditions are for for you know companies to to get the the money. Uh, but I guess like across the board, you know, there, there's a sense of urgency that, that firms really need 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 money right now. And, and there's still no no clear sense of when the lockdowns will end and, you know, if many of these businesses will be able to open once the lockdowns are lifted. So. Yeah. For our listeners in Europe, um, again, we've already gone through one round of the um, loan applications, uh, you know, directly targeted at small businesses um, to give you a little bit of a. An overview, there are roughly 30 million small businesses in the U.S., um, about 1.7 million were funded in that first round. So we have 28.3 million to go. I seriously doubt from my own take that this is going to cover 28.3 million other companies. Um, I would be surprised by that. I mean, do we think that the banks are, are and, and in this case, tech companies are well positioned to actually handle this? Yeah, Lance. Yeah, I mean, the good news is that, you know, the last 10 years, the banks are further along the, on the curve of, of, of digital adoption. So, you know, had this happened 10 years ago, it would have been catastrophic for distribution of funds. But I think from, from speaking specifically from round one to round two, there's been a couple of changes that I think should be highlighted. Like in the first round, there were banks that were wanting to distribute that were not even uh, SBA lenders. They had to get applications and approve for that. That should be done for them now. Um, many of the banks, you know, had to start new partnerships with uh, with with fintechs to do front ends to, to receive applications. That's in place now for the second round also. And then this is the big kicker here is, is um, in that first round, it was very heavily uh, on human touch. I mean, a large bank for throwing several thousand people at it and then it could take up to 30 minutes per application. And it was so chaotic that, you know, by the time that the banks could get around to kind of developing APIs or use automation to turn that 30-minute process into 30 seconds, the funds had run out. And so I think, you know, it's, it's, it, that's, that's the good news of what's going to go well uh, this next time is that there's going to be a lot more automation in place to get things to the pipeline. I think the flip side to that is it's going to be a bigger race to grab the money and before it runs out. And I, I expect, you know, at the time we're, we're recording this now that the it hasn't gone live, but when it, as soon as it goes live, um, there's going to be such a, a major spike in the in the traffic that you know I, I certainly expect there will be some problems with even the best tuned bank having access. It's not going to be about their pro- their problems, but just kind of the infrastructure of the federal government. So it'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, Anna. 
I think one of the issues that happened before and just speak, speaking to fintech firms is that, you know, many of the online lenders came about after the first financial, not the first financial crisis, the previous financial crisis. And the, their whole point was that banks were in lending to small businesses. So there's this whole host of small businesses, which are normally, you know, sole proprietors or very small businesses who never got money from banks the first time around. So and it doesn't seem like they're getting money from them now. It seems like it's going to more established businesses or businesses that are already bank clients. So my question is, now that the fintechs were approved, they got approved essentially essentially when the money had run out. Will they, will the money ever get to the smaller firms like, you know, the bodega down the street? Like people who normally never, not the bodega, I guess, maybe slightly even bigger, but the hairdressers, people that normally are like square clients or funding circle clients and, you know, never saw money from banks and are unlikely to see it this time around too. So that's one of the big issues, I think, that still have to be figured out. Yeah, thanks. I mean, Adrian, what do you think? I think there's a couple of things to bear in mind with small businesses. Simplicity and details are really important. So it's really important that a small business owner can just get something done easily and that the details of it are suited to them. And what I mean by that is, you know, the the hairdresser, the plumber, the takeaway restaurant owner, these are incredibly busy people. They're under a huge amount of stress right now, financial stress, family stress, all the rest. They don't have the time to wade through detailed application processes to spend hours looking into exactly how to get stuff. You know, we, we saw with the in the UK with the government furlough scheme, it got massive adoption by businesses because they made it very, very simple to apply. Whereas the loan scheme in the UK, they've really struggled with adoption because the details weren't as good and, and, and it took longer. So if I was a policymaker, I would be really thinking not just what do we want to achieve in principle, but how in practice do we make it dead easy for a small business owner just to, to get this done and get the support they need? Yeah, Simon, I mean, what are your thoughts? I think Adrian makes an interesting point there about the simplicity for small businesses. Uh, the really interesting thing about the US approach is it wasn't that simple, but it all got used up quickly. Uh, in the UK, it's not been that simple, but of the 330 odd billion, I think something like 1.6 or 1.7 at the time we record this has actually made it out to businesses. So at least it's been somewhat effective. Um, but I think about if if I'm a lender right now, how the heck do you underwrite this stuff? It was actually um, uh, the, the CEO of OpenWorks, who were an open bank startup in the UK uh, asked that question on the podcast uh, a couple of a couple of shows ago you know, from an underwriting perspective I can't see any lender underwriting anything other than stuff that's guaranteed and backed by the government at least 80 percent because how do you how do you account for that in impairment you know like what's what's the cycle that a that an underwriter has to think about from a credit risk standpoint about whether these businesses are fundamentally good or not and there's some interesting things happening in the open banking space about people trying to identify businesses that are fundamentally good and try and create data sets around, you know, what is a what are what are some projections or what are some scenarios under which the economy could normalize so that you might actually be able to build some underwriting that actually makes sense so that the banks themselves could lend off their own balance sheet or that lending could actually happen. This is very different to the financial crisis where they stopped lending because of a confidence issue systemically. This is like, we've no idea how to lend into the real economy. And that's massive. Yeah, we're, we're kind of Star Trek, right? We're going where no man or woman has gone before. Lance, you were nodding uh, rather intently as Simon was talking. 
Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, the the someone raised some good points about kind of the, the credit risk and, and looking at how, uh, you know, who do, who do you decide to, to lend to? And I think I'm going to go back to a little bit of, of um, what the other two guests um, spoke about, Anne and Adrian, about getting it out to the, the small businesses to, to touch on that just a little bit here. Um, you know, one thing that's different about this the second round is that there's been $60 billion allocated uh, to smaller financial institutions, 30 billion for those that are under 10 billion and another 30 billion for the 10 to 50 billion assets under management. And that's, you know, with the hope that this will be more fairly distributed out to the parts of the country with the smaller banks are more likely to serve smaller communities with small businesses wanting to receive these stimulus loans. So, you know, what's interesting to me about this is as if they've, as they've tried to kind of make it more fair is they've kind of, uh, I used to play a game as a kid called Spoons where everyone would, you know, when a card was played, everyone had to reach the middle and grab the spoon and whoever grabbed last didn't get a spoon. You've now got a situation where these small businesses have to decide which table they're going to play at. And I think the natural inclination is that the the, the big banks um, have the best advantage and they've got the biggest pool. But you know, when you go back and look at the stats from round one, you actually see that some of the smaller banks um, not only got a, had a higher percentage of loans accepted, but they funded quicker. So, you know, this, you know, uh, this is really set up for a, you know, a major serious economic John von Neumann game theory going on if you're a small business. If, do I go with my, you know, a tier one or um, to, uh, you know, a smaller bank at this time? And I mean, Sam, that's a really good point that, that Lance makes about the small lenders in the U.S. have really been at the forefront. I mean, you've had a, a number of them on the, the breakfast show that you do on LinkedIn. Um, can you name some examples of, of what people have been doing in, in the smaller lending space? Because I think community banking in the U.S. could be, could be the real savior for small businesses. That is actually one of the greatest pivots to the next story I've ever heard, Simon. It's as if you can see the show notes. But yeah, no, I agree. A, a real good friend... Um, 211FS is a really tiny bank in um, Edmonds, Oklahoma, uh, Jill Castilla, who's the CEO there. And what I love about them and, and community banks across the piece have really been, um, I think, doing as much as they can to drive this. There's a lot of frustration. Um, and, and man, every, every one of our guests noted on that, right? The e-trans system is incredibly um, difficult to navigate. Um, you know, there's going to be a massive um, uh, backlog of applica- applications going in for this next round. But we've seen folks that have partnered in ways I never would have thought possible. And it's actually a next story. Jill Castilla from this tiny one branch bank in Edmonds, Oklahoma, um, reached out on Twitter to Mark Cuban, the entrepreneur that's on Shark Tank, the billionaire, because um, he was he was raising questions on what you could do to get funding out quicker. And I was talking to Jill and uh, she was given his email and he called her twice over the weekend, about two weeks ago, um, to the point where he's been working with her and others on a couple of suggestions for doing this. So this little one branch bank in Oklahoma now has uh, Mark Cuban on speed dial, which you got to love. Yes, I have hit them up for his email and phone number, by the way. And hopefully in the future, we'll get Cuban on the show. So that's our second story. Mark Cuban advocates wait and see cash heavy investing approach. This article is in Business Insider. The celebrity entrepreneur forecasted a market decline amidst the coronavirus pandemic. I've gone to cash, Cuban told the Pomp podcast. With what he said, he was optimistic about long-term growth potential. He said, when we look back in 10 years, there's going to be some amazing companies created and having cash and having access to cash or having cash is going to give you an opportunity to invest in them. 
He also advised investing in real estate and predicted the commodities would rise on the back of inflation and expected returns to the U.S. by manufacturing companies. Markets have rebounded in April, but Cuban's insights on inflation have been echoed by BlackRock, J.P. Morgan, um, and Morgan Stanley. So, Simon, thoughts on Mr. Cuban? Well, so he's aligned with uh, the likes of uh, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, who's been all cash for a few years, or Ray Dalio, uh, the the famed uh, hedge fund investor, who's been all cash for a number of years and actually been getting a lot of um, negative press from the markets. It's like you missed out on the bull run, like you know you've you've not been giving good returns as a hedge fund, and actually now we've seen a reckoning of probably kicked off by this, but we were, you know, sort of really frothy in, in, in a high market anyway, and we've fallen much, much lower than a, than a regular recession. And so it was actually Ray Dalio who was saying that, you know, you see this once every 75 years that you see the debt cycle resets itself and you get a fundamental switch in how uh, we base money. So the last time it was from the gold standard to the US dollar. And what's interesting to me about this is he, Mark Cuban, uh, Berkshire Hathaway and many others are sitting in cash and seeing long-term fundamental value in these things, but not yet. And when this money does come back into the market, there is potentially a recovery there. But if you look at the 1929 um, Great Depression, that's like a 15-year cycle. And by the end of that 15-year cycle, you know the USA is storming ahead. Uh, the world economy is doing incredibly well. But a couple of things have happened. The New Deal has happened, and the Marshall Plan for Europe has happened. So it's going to take some really interesting uh, collaborations. And then the last point on that is um, something that I saw a webinar by TradeShift, who are in the, the global supply chains. And not only have we seen demand shocks, we've seen supply shocks in the global supply chain. And that will continue to happen now for however long the lockdowns continue until there's a vaccine. And if we're seeing this supply-demand shock, people will start to really think about, should we have a globalized supply chain or should we think about resiliency in our supply chains? So it's really interesting that actually you might see a re an onshoring of manufacturing capability. You might see more local food production, which kind of unites everything from you know the right who are anti-globalist and the left who are into circular economies. And this was a point Mark Andreessen made in his blog, uh, It's Time to Build. So there's an optimistic future out there if if we can get to it, but there's a, there's a lot of pain to get there first. So, Adrian, are you sitting on a lot of cash right now? And if so, <laughs> can I please have some? <laughs> I, I have to say, I, I'm a skeptic about any kind of wild generalization uh, of uh, investment recommendations. I mean, you know, Cuban can do what's what's right for him, but you know, even the biggest names get it wrong sometimes. I mean, I remember I, I was a very early employee at Google um, back in like 2004, which was the, the year of the Google IPO. And Warren Buffett said at the time, um, this is a fabulous company, but it comes at a fabulous price. I'll pass. And, you know, passed on the Google IPO at $85 a share. Um, and it's now, what, a couple of thousand bucks. And, and that's after a stock split. So, you know, even the best names in the business get it, get, get it wrong sometimes. And I mean, Frankly, I think I think at any given time, and particularly now, there are massive value creation opportunities in the economy. And you know, when when the the kaleidoscope gets shaken, the pieces are all over the place. There are even bigger opportunities to you know pick up value. That old thing of you know 
you shouldn't find a £20 note on the floor in a capitalist society because someone else would already have picked it up. That isn't so true at times like this because the £20 notes are all over the place. It's just we're still figuring out that how uh, how the new world kind of looks. So massive value creation opportunities means massive investment opportunities. And I, I think it's absurd to say you should be sitting on piles of cash right now. Yeah, it's uh, so I actually saw a, a, a Twitter post this morning that was one of the most sobering things I think I've read in a while. And it was um, to put the current crisis in context. There are three numbers to focus on. Um, one is 26 million unemployed in the U.S. And we know the number's higher. You throw in good contractors, everything else. We've got to be north of 30 million. Um, we'll be over 50,000 dead due to the virus today, probably around 51. And this has happened in five weeks. Um, I, I don't know they can point another another five-week period in the history, in recent history, that has been like this. So taking that into account, Lance, are we – I hate doing predictions, and I hate throwing that at people. But do you think this is a, a recession or the, that other word we don't want to go anywhere near? Um. Well, you know, let me start off by these are my own opinions. I'm not a I'm not, yes. a, re- I'm not, a, I'm not a registered advisor, so please, please play at your own risk. Uh, and, Amen. I, and, and to Adrian's point, you know, even the best get it get it wrong. Um, you know, whether it's a you know a recession or the, the D word, um, you know, companies are taking a hit, and you know, uh, there's you you shared some sobering numbers. There's, I mean, economic, but also you know. People are losing lives in, in this this crisis right now, so that's probably you know want to recognize it and, and show some empathy for that situation. But even with kind of um, people moving to cash, if you really look at kind of the market overall, there are still some opportunities to to stick into some some investments that still look like winners. I mean, some of the tech stocks are still doing great. The digital only companies have been agile and ready for this from the get go. Even some bank stocks are, are holding up, so you know there's going to be some some stable performances now. No, you know if you're a fintech and you're trying to raise money right now or you know get investment, um, you know I, I, what I think is is those that have a kind of a strong investor base or you know they have had a, a good um, ecosystem built up with a good core group of customers, um, you know, and having an overspend on marketing. They're going to, I think they'll do fine with, you know, and continue to grow. So like, you know, I, I don't, I think there's light at the end of the tunnel um, and, you know, you don't need to be all cash. You know, there's, there's some still some good, good companies to bet on. I mean, you look at Visa's investment in, in RailsBank. I mean, they're, they had a great model and great value proposition and, and people are going to still continue to invest in, and raise, raise companies up that are doing well right now. Yeah. And I mean, what do you think the impact is on, you know, we're going to be selfish here and talk about fintech. But I mean, what do you think? I mean, because I've had this discussion a bunch of times. Do I think a lot, bunch of companies are going to fold, get acquired? We'll see a lot of aqua hires. Um, I mean, what do, what do you where do you think we're headed over the next few months? I, I kind of ask the same thing to investors. I think it just depends on the type of company. Um, if you're a if you're an online lender, it's not a great time because you have a problem on both sides, right? You have defaults, and then no one's going to give you money. Like on the secondary market, it's getting very tight. Like who's going to give you money to lend, right? Um, so it's a double whammy. So it's interesting to see companies like SoFi, like who's now shifted and are now becoming a, you know, tech provider. That That's very interesting. Um, I, I don't know if that's the right strategy specifically, but it's interesting that they're pivoting. And then you'll see, you see someone like Lending Club, they announced this week, they were laying out, laying off 30% of their staff. 
Um, and you know, they were going to buy a bank to have a balance sheet, you know, what's going to, what's going to happen to that? Um, you know, and then what about the insurers who are actually like the fintech insurers who are actually the, the insurers and not passing it off to someone else? Like if you were a fintech with a balance sheet or needing of a balance sheet that you would get from someone else, it's probably very tough. Right. And then there's other areas. But of course, if you're someone who is doing well and has nothing to do with it, you might um, you might continue to do well. And then another thing that I always think about is what about the B2B fintechs? Right. Like. Um, what are bank tech budgets going to look like this year? Um, there's a lot of talk of like, they're going to digitize. Yes. But are they, are they going to continue to just spend as much as they were spending before? I mean, obviously they'll spend to keep running the bank, but will they spend and invest in new projects, you know, but on the, on what we were discussing before, I guess, like I am already hearing people in trade finance and, you know, at banks talking about how the supply chains are probably going to become more localized, uh, and are have taken like they're they've gone back twenty years of the instruments they're having to use because you can't just fly around the world and check that supplies are exactly uh, what you need, right? Uh, you're stuck there, and so you're going to have to use forms of financing that you were using, you know, maybe twenty years ago, um, because now we're not not as globalized anymore. Uh, and it's interesting because we had you know the trade wars before and Trump trying to b- bring everything back home, and now <laughs> now. You know, this might happen and it has nothing to do with the trade wars. It has to do with just, you know, the fact that you can't go anywhere. So, so Adrian, since I asked you for a pile of cash to begin this segment, I'm going to give you the last word on this segment. So what, what's your final thoughts on this? Yeah, I think in terms of the, the impact on, on fintechs, it really depends on the sort of thing that you do and the, and the sort of customers that you serve. I mean, obviously, if your customers are primarily sectors like hospitality and travel, that have been particularly hit by this, you are going to be in trouble. And we've seen a lot of fintech businesses laying people off. On the other hand, if you're providing a service that is more useful in these times than normal, then you know we are seeing some companies seeing greater growth. Um, I mean, you know, my uh, business receipt bank, we help accountants work remotely with their clients. So suddenly it's kind of gone from being a nice to have to, to an essential because every accountant now has to work with their small business clients remotely. Um, I was in touch with um, a friend at a cash flow forecasting business who was saying, you know, they've got a lot of demand right now because, you know, by God, everyone wants to know about their cash flow situation right now. So cash flow forecasting is is pretty important at these times. Whereas, you know, other products that are more of a of a luxury at these times are gonna are gonna really struggle. So we have seen some layoffs in fintech. Yeah. Yeah, so the the one thing I love about this, um, again, y'all can't see this because it's a podcast, but we're in Zoom because everyone lives in Zoom right now, is the fact that right behind Adrian is a landline phone, which I didn't know still existed, but I absolutely love that about you, Adrian. So you have to be sitting on cash because you do have a landline phone at home. All right, let's move on to our next story. Um, how the COVID-19 pandemic will accelerate digital financial services. This is a story from a great friend of ours called 11FS. Here at 11FS, we published the research deck today on the subject of the long-term implications of the pandemic. The COVID-19 pandemic has created an immediate operational crisis in financial services firms that have ignored the digital imperative. Medium term, there's going to be a recession. We know that. Long term, there'll be an overhaul of financial services. In the medium to long term, then, it will accelerate the shift to digital, hastening the move from products to services, and permanently reshaping the financial services industry. So, Simon, you were heavily engaged in the creation of this report, which I looked at this morning, and um, as an unbiased <laughs> unbiased reader, I thought it was fantastic. Can you give us a quick summary? 
Yeah, happy to. But I should say that Sarah Kachansky and Ben Enser did did the heavy lifting on this one. I, I, I just helped out around the edges. I, I think it was really about looking at um, getting from the pre-crisis to the reaction to the recession and recovery and then the reinvention. We're going through sort of um, a, a real sort of cycle at the moment. And as you see that, the first order and second order effects will be really different at different points in that timeline. So what this report does is it kind of runs through some of those changes. And I think as Adrian was saying in the last story, there will be winners and losers. Um, but there are a few, if you understand the the causes and the timeline, you can start to figure out what the effects are and, and what you should do about it. So just to give you one or two examples of in the report, we talk about right now, banks have an operational crisis, forcing them to digitize, but actually also forcing them to get very creative about looking at being truly digital. Um, banks are also overwhelmed with credit requests, um, but they're bracing for a deep recession, so they're, they're on both sides. And if you're an online lender, it's, it's even tighter. But investment firms, well, they're in kind of two different positions. If you're a Robinhood right now or an Acorns, you're seeing incredible growth, um, almost untold of growth as people are really looking for that flight to safety. Um, but if you're uh, an investor or, or kind of a, a wealth management company that relies on face-to-face interaction or, or human interaction, advisor-led, then maybe you're struggling a bit more. But so potentially there's some some changes coming there and then insurance companies you know they're probably braced for significant payouts um, but they will actually probably in three to six months time become under really significant pressure so you know the report's available now you can head to uh, info.11fs.com forward slash covid19 um, and check out um, a show this friday where we'll kind of dive into that uh, this past friday actually well, the Ben and Sarah who wrote the report will, will go through it in depth. But I mean, I'm sure our other guests have views on this. I mean, the financial services industry is going to fundamentally potentially look quite different. Um, and and I'd love the views of the group. Is this accelerating existing trends or is this really, really changing the market or a bit of both? Yeah, Lance. Yeah, yeah I mean, this is certainly in the wheelhouse of, the, of what I do day in and day out um, in terms of kind of bringing companies into digital um, my role is focusing on digital payment companies and banks who are trying to uh, move to a digital transformation in a, in a hybrid multi-cloud environment. And I think this certainly is accelerating the trends. I mean, there are trends around, we'd say the future of payments and banking is instant, open and everywhere, tra- real-time payments, open banking and, and, and cross-border systems. And and now that you know this crisis is, is kind of forced everybody to go digital a lot faster than and look at the processes that they have in place that, that are high manual touch reevaluating you know branches get another chance of like you know do we really need another branch um, but I think you know digital only is going to be the new norm um, and it's just going to accelerate from the past decade and I think you know banks and others can't get there fast enough so they're going to be looking for platforms to build upon and so it's going to be important to be kind of in an ecosystem where you can quickly interconnect to those platforms that are going to be helping you get to where you need to be and you know right the other thing that's is is if you're a platform provider you're going to be able to want to onboard those as quickly as possible because right now you know it's going to be a race uh for the pocket money of these companies that are trying to go digital only if you know build on my platform so there's a lot of opportunities right now um to you know help those that should be building on platforms and then trying to do it in-house yeah, it's um, it's interesting. We've been doing this thing at 11FS every Wednesday night here in the U.S. where we do a virtual happy hour on Zoom. Um, God, I wish I had Zoom sock, and I don't. But we, we do this on Zoom. We have about five or six people. We've been doing it about for the past month. 
And one of the things that really struck me, um, we had a group of, you know, folks like from Bank of America, City, Wells, um, and, and even smaller banks, that they said one of the things that has really stuck out to them is, um, especially when the stimulus checks came out and we're dealing with PPP, that the sheer volume of transactions and activity they're seeing on their digital channels is 6x and above. And that pretty much consistently across the piece, most of them can't handle the traffic. You know, I'm used to, I'm used to reading about no no offense, Simon. I used to be reading about UK banks falling over and 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 uh, and being out. I won't name them by name, but you know, it's, we we can all see that. But you know, that legacy infrastructure in a lot of cases, and you built on a million times over. You know, I think a lot of them would kill to have something like, hey, Adrian at Receipt Bank, right? If you can if you can start a little bit anew, it's 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 a little bit different of a situation than than what a lot of them are facing. And that's what I wonder: are they really going to be able to? Are they going to have the capital to invest in the right partners, you know, to work with to do this? Uh, you call us at 11FS. We'd love to work with you. There's a shout out um, for us on this. Yeah, Lance. Uh, you, you shamelessly promoted your... your, your uh, Twice. It's our show. Your, your, I don't give your, a damn. Your, your report. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> criticizing you that, but just prefacing that with... Um, you mentioned kind of um, Zoom. Have you seen, seen surge and peak traffic right now? Um, I'll, I'll just do a, a shameless promotion for I, I was not involved with the, the, the webinar, but Equinix is involved with the webinar with, with Zoom, Netflix, and I believe Dropbox. So, you know, customers like those sit inside of our data center and they interconnect with each other into the network providers so that when there is these massive unexpected peaks in traffic, they can actually add bandwidth immediately in real time. And so, you know, you know, it's really great to work with a company that's in the, sitting in the middle of, of helping companies that are helping us work from home. And, and it's a difficult time for everybody. So, you know, I'm glad that Zoom's working for you and that it's, 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 it's keeping us connected to, to my family and my children doing their school work via Zoom. So anyway, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of changes happening for all of us right now. Yeah. How about you, Adrian? So, uh, look, I think one of the really interesting questions here for, for um, change in the financial industry generally is what what does the new normal look like after this? Because, you know, obviously the trend right now that we're all living in is remote working. We're all sitting at home and, you know, everything has to be done remotely. Fine. That's the way the world is going to be for the next X months. But I think the really big question here is what is the world looking like for the next five, ten years? As a result of this crisis, what is different about the world, you know, two, one, two years hence compared to where we are, where we're sitting today? And what does that mean for the financial services industry? You know, we'll live, I think, in a more um, in a more anxious society um, that's perhaps more resistant to um, to so much international travel um, that's perhaps um, uh, got, you know, social distancing type measures in in lots of different settings across society over a longer period of time what are the implications of these deep sort of societal changes for finance and fintech and basically i think the people who can really get ahead of that and figure that out are going to be uh, are going to be very uh, appreciated um, and as a result very successful i know i can't wait personally um, i live in jacksonville florida um, that's the city that in the movie Deadpool, um, Ryan Reynolds, the main character, said, I've, been, I've worked in the most dangerous places in the world, um, Mogadishu, um, Iraq, the Applebee's in Jacksonville. 
It's an actual line from that movie. Were, um, were you one of the ones am, that rushed on the beach there, Sam? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not going to make any commentary on that. I am desperate to get on a plane and come to New York and have lunch with Anna um, at hopefully restaurants that are still open um, and aren't going to get devastated by this. Anna, I'm going to give you the last word in this segment. I mean, um, do so you think, I'm be are you pessimistic or optimistic? I knew it. I knew it. I love yeah. you for that. I mean, Obviously, all you guys are all in fintech and you all sell services to banks or like finance or our bank in one way or another. Right. So I'm, I'm not. So I'm going to be. So I, I think that, <laughs> I think that in um, you know, an uncertain moment like now and what's very different from other situations is that we don't know how 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 it will last. And it happened very quickly. I foresee big banks not deciding anything right now like maybe they'll move fast on certain things but i can't imagine them being like yeah this is a great moment to invest to put to start a new project like it'll just be on hold and just just the way big firms are like let's just wait for a little bit uh let's fix this let's try to be slow like they have so much to worry about like they have their clients are going out of business like they're they're losing money in other areas like I can't imagine them being like, yes, this is a, like, you know, they're always slow to begin with. So I think maybe this might be a, an excuse for not an excuse, but will be a moment where their budgets are frozen and they can't they can't start new projects. So maybe. And also, I just think this might be a moment where everybody's poorer across the board. And so it it will be harder to do business in general. And so, you know, it, it, it'll be a struggle. And and. I'm I'm guessing, you know, yeah, the, the volumes on digital are moving up, but we're also seeing, and, and also people are, I hear a lot of people saying, well, now we're confirming that there was no reason for us to go to the office, right? That's true. Like, but we're also hearing already, like we had a story two days ago about JP Morgan sending a memo saying, we're already thinking about how to get people back to work. So I think it's, it's wishful thinking to think that all of a sudden all of us will be able to say hey my kid's sick I'm gonna work from home because anyways you know that I can work from home I did it for five months uh, I think people like to know that you're in the office so they can watch you and they know what you're doing and so I think a lot of a lot of innovation will come and there'll be more things that we will be able to do digitally but I don't think there'll be this like explosion of quick innovation it's just the constraints are there. It's on it's uncertain times. People don't really want to take risks at all at the moment because they don't really know if they'll have money in two weeks or in a month or if, what about like, imagine signing a partnership with a, a small fintech now that's new and has some really cool product. Like you really don't know if they'll be in business in five days at this point, right? So it, I just see, maybe I'm just being very negative, um, but you know. Well, the good news at 11FS, this will be shameless plug number four, everybody, if you keep in count. Again, if you want to look at this report we put together to read the full report, go to info.11fs.com forward slash COVID-19. And for more analysis, check out Friday's show where you can hear from Benjamin Esser, our director of research, who wrote the report. All right, everybody, we're going to take a short break and go grab a coffee and we'll jump right back in. This episode is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneer and creator of personal digital banking that helps community financial institutions strategically differentiate their digital offerings from those of megabanks, big techs, and fintechs. So how do they do that? Well, with their Bano digital platform, a 100% API-enabled digital open banking platform, you get beautiful, lightning-fast native apps for your customers and members and cloud-based, core-connected back-office tools for your employees. Visit Bano.com to schedule a demo today. That's B-A-N-N-O.com. Are you switching up your morning routine now that we're all in social distancing? So are we. 
We started two daily breakfast shows to help kickstart your day on both sides of the Atlantic. We chat about the latest news with a series of industry guests, all calling in remotely, of course. So if you're U.S.-based, the FinTech Insider Breakfast Show U.S., hosted by, well, me, will be going live at 1030 Eastern Standard Time on the 11FS LinkedIn channel. So grab a coffee and tune in. Just follow 11FS on LinkedIn to get the daily notification. In the UK, the FinTech Insider Breakfast Show goes live on David Breer's LinkedIn every morning. He's so special. At 8.30 a.m. British Standard Time. Just follow David on LinkedIn to get the notification. And for both shows, don't forget to add in your comments in the thread. We love hearing where you're tuning in from, and we'll try to answer as many questions as we can live on each show. Okay, now back to the new show where we're moving on from the coronavirus and talking about some other stories happening around the globe. All right, our next story, we're going to talk about Robinhood. Robinhood nears the end of its latest funding round. This story is from Bloomberg. The app-based brokerage is believed to have raised $250 million based on its $7.6 billion pre-money valuation. Sequoia Capital is said to be leading the round. The deal is for far from the final end, and it may not even be reached. Robinhood suffered several debilitating outages last month, but sources within the company say revenue has grown during the pandemic. Both Robinhood and Sequoia wouldn't comment on the story. And just to add to that, Robinhood allegedly had $60 million in revenue in March. That's three times as much as it did last year. So, you know, to, to our, our guest here, what would be the reasons for Robinhood's success during the pandemic? And are its customers paying off the market's volatility? Adrian, I'll give you the first word on this because you still have the cool landline phone. I swear to God, I love that. <laughs> it's an entry phone, actually. But <laughs> I love it. It's, it's a cool landline entry phone. So the the um, uh, I think this says something about the power of free, doesn't it? I mean, if, if, if you're offering something for nothing that people used to charge money for, then uh, a lot of people are going to want it. And, you know, when times are hard, people are probably going to want it even more. The The question is, you know, if, if I was selling $20 bills for $10, I would have the fastest top line revenue growth of any business ever, but it wouldn't necessarily make a great investment. So I think the, the thing where, um, which isn't obvious, is how great an investment is is the company. But uh, it's it's no doubt a very appealing proposition, particularly at this time, and it's going to get a lot of growth. Yeah. What do you think, Lance? Look, you know, you mentioned that um, they, they had some outages and they didn't comment on it on the, on the story here. But look, I've spent 10 years prior to my job right now in focused on payments and banking. Before, I used to work in electronic trading, capital markets, ecosystems. And I know that can, during those periods of high volatility that we're experiencing, you know, coupled with the kind of the downward movement in the market, you know, think about the dot-com bubble burst or the 2008 financial crisis, the current pandemic. Individual investors will often want to direct their own portfolios, portfolios and retirement funds. And so, you know, uh, you know, it's not surprising if you actually read some stories. It wasn't just Robinhood that had outages in March. There were others, big names. Um, so, you know, look, they, they may have suffered some volume-related outages, but the brokerages right now, especially large broker dealers. They're reporting record volumes and record commissions. So, you know, this I think this is a good place for people to, you know, Robin, you know, it's a blip. Um, they've got some money now that they can invest in infrastructure. And that's certainly something that, you know, um, we, you know, I'm experienced in helping kind of the unicorns like them kind of, you know, exp- as they go to expand into new markets and into, into new geos and asset classes, um, you know, they can use that to kind of create architecture that will help them, you know, 
uh, solve this, you know, challenges they have with growth. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's a great opportunity for Robinhood to, to invest for their future. And I think the investors in them see that, that there's, there's a lot of upside for that. Yeah. So on the day that we announced another 4.4 million people on unemployment, the Dow was up 96 points. I have nothing more to add. And that was going to be what I was going to say, Sam, and, and I wanted to throw this to Anna because there's been some speculation that um, a lot of the markets breaking logic are due to the fact that these mobile-only free investment apps are bringing in retail back to the markets in, in a big, big way, and that you can see that in the price of some growth stocks potentially. Um, it is speculated. Uh, and it's interesting that Robinhood has kind of got this, like, are they a fintech darling? Are they a sustainable business question? I, I don't know where you stand on that, Anna. So... I don't know if you guys remember, but after the outages, there was a great story from Bloomberg and I'm Reuters, so I'm saying great. So imagine how great it was, but that they'd maxed out their credit lines, right? So then coincidentally, Bloomberg has a story later saying, actually, they're raising so much money. So I'm wondering whether, I mean, it could just be that they that they maxed out on their credit lines and now they're getting more capital because they're actually not doing, they're doing well and their investors think that's give them more money to continue to do business. But you know, let's not forget that there was also a funding problem at the beginning. Um, and yes, like other companies also had outages, but other companies weren't like new companies. And I think if you're a new player and you have an outage, it's a lot more maybe worrying for a user because you're like, especially if you're like, we're so much better than the other players and we're really cool. And, you know, and we love our customers and we do everything for you. And then they, there were tons of them complaining on, on, um, online and, and they got back some like discounts on their premium accounts, which no one cared because they lost out so much during the big market swings. Right. So, um, so I, I mean, obviously I don't have a personal opinion on whether they're great or not great, but I, I just think, you know, you have to take everything. You have to be very cautious with these like giant FinTech companies now because, you know, like they're giant and if they were public, there'd be a more level of transparency into what they're doing, but because they're all private companies, you only see little, little you, you see you just you don't see as much as you would you would see before right so clearly i can't imagine like their investor just letting them go bankrupt now but you know it might not look as rosy as as they're saying right and we don't know, Anna, to your point, whether or not it's uh, a working capital issue because they had a load of people coming in trying to buy and sell stocks and did the did the working cap run out or are they fundamentally kind of got a cash flow problem generally in the nature of their business? We, we don't have that transparency. But I do think there's something interesting that they're seeing tremendous user growth. And Adrian, I was interested by your point that it's it feels like it's a giveaway. Uh, they do actually have premium models and they're seeing 3x revenue growth over last year, 60 million in monthly revenue ain't bad for a business that's fundamentally you know a cloud-based platform with with some fairly static fixed costs and and you know not not very high variable costs there's there's arguments on both sides of this and there are winners and losers and maybe robin hood's in the winner category maybe they're in the loser category but you know being a digital first business could place them in the right space but it doesn't guarantee it yeah i mean we're, we're talking about giants so it, it, as far as uh especially the u.s is concerned Let's talk about the giant. Stripe raises $600 million in new funding. Story by Axios. The San Francisco-based payments firm raised the money in an extension to its Series G round. How many rounds are there, everybody? I mean, is there like Series <laughs> GG and BB? Um, the Series G round ended in September. The round made Stripe the third highest valued startup in the U.S. It is now worth $36 billion. Co-founder and president 
Um, John Cullison says the companies that have joined Stripe since March have generated almost $1 billion in revenue. While Stripe was considered a prime candidate for an IPO in 2020, right now nobody's considered a prime candidate for an IPO in 2020, Cullison said the public offering would not happen anytime soon. Um, probably not a bad statement. Stripe's current clients include Zoom. Hey, we gave Zoom a great shout out earlier. Instacart, DoorDash, and Postmates. It recently led a $20 million funding round in Fast. So, um, I'm assuming this funding was all in place before the pandemic ramped up. That's like the, the dumbest question I could ask, but probably safe to say, Anna. Uh, I guess probably yes. They were already working on it. That's the sense that I got from the deals that were announced. Um, I, I find interesting here because with payments, there was a lot of discussion a while ago. You have some new fintech payments firms that are more focused on online payments, like like Stripe. That's what they're known for, and they're great for that. You can get a small business to do payments online very quickly. And then you had other ones that were more in store like Adyen and Adyen's doing really well and they do digital as well. But I wonder if like this will be what makes some be winners and losers. Like if you were online now, your like customer base might continue to still do well. Although again, I have to be negative and say, we're all going to be a bit poorer after this. So there'll still be less shopping online. No, there'll be more like Instacart shopping, but I doubt people are going to go out and buy five pairs of shoes because like, they probably don't need them to walk around from the living room to the bedroom. So, you know, there's just generally going to be less business for everyone. So if you're at the top, you, you'll you be fine. But if you're like some of the smaller, even if you do service small businesses, like even Square, they do online, they do like websites now as well. So it's interesting you make that point. The size of the pie is shrinking overall for the whole economy. But how much of that pie, you know, I think there was something like the e-commerce was still less than 20% of all retail activity. The last Capgemini World Payments report I saw. So it's still, if you shifted a good proportion of that into e-commerce, you would still see net potential growth in e-commerce for players like Stripe. But that's a hypothesis and you need to look at the data closer. But I think that's interesting. And you mentioned, Sam, you know, Zoom, Instacart, DoorDash. People always say, well, of course they've got those as clients. But what people miss is they've also got some middle America clients. And Stripe have a, a case study that they, they published publicly about uh, one of their clients being Mattel, the doll maker, you know, like um, action figures and so on. Now, what's interesting is they came to Stripe because of PCI compliance. They came to Stripe because of something that was actually very operational and back office. And, that, you know, the, the, the traditional players wouldn't have, wouldn't have seen that as Stripe's strength. But they've been able to make the technology so easy to use from a developer's perspective. They've changed the operating model, the sales funnel, and how you fundamentally engage with clients as a payments processor. And I think that has changed the game a little bit. And I think people miss that sometimes, uh, that, that nuance about the change of operating model to being in an ecosystem. And let's not forget, Stripe powers Shopify, which in itself is a massive business. Yeah, we should have done a drinking game of how many times we say Zoom. And you pound a drink. Uh, Lance, I mean, you had talked about Zoom a little bit earlier. What's your thoughts on Stripe? Is this just is this going to be the big, just getting bigger? Uh, well, you know, we were talking about pies early, which has made me a, a little bit hungry uh, about the pie shrinking here. Um, I, you know, to go along with that analogy, you know, yes, the pie may be shrink, the whole pie may be shrinking, but, you know, investors are going to focus in on the individual slices that are growing. Um, and obviously, in the long run, past this pandemic, this is not going to be forever. Um, Stripe, you know, has the fundamentals and a good track record. And when it comes to, you know, the, and made a comparison about ad yen and things like that. Look, venture capitalists can only they're they're they're, they're going to invest in in non-public companies. So I don't know if it's really fair to compare Stripe to ad yen in this case. 
Um, and lastly, Simon, you mentioned uh, Mattel as a good example of Middle America story and easy dolls, but you, you got to go. They make Hot Wheels, buddy. That's what they're known for. Yeah, I was waiting for him to say Barbie and then explain why he was saying that. Yeah. Um, Adrian, you're, you're bullish on Stripe and, and this funding round? Yeah, I mean, look, I think when you've got a genuinely disruptive product and proposition, you're actually not thinking so much about the category and the, the top line overall growth of the category. When you're in a category that's absolutely vast and you've got a distinctive proposition that's disruptive and you're taking share, the growth of the category is like, the least of your worries in a sense you're you're about taking that category winning that category from you know all the other all the other folks that are that are out there and and i think that's the game that stripe are playing and and they're a they're a they're a great company with with a you know as as um has been said you know really easy for developers to use and adopt and and that's what you need to win i think in that space so I, I like the little segue that we've done over the past two um, segments. So we talked about Robinhood and then we said, OK, let's go bigger. We talked about Stripe. So let's go biggest. Let's talk about Google. Um, there's leaked pictures showing Google's new smart debit card. This is a story coming out of TechCrunch. The web giant is apparently working on a new checking account that would connect to its Google Pay app. Customers will be able to use their Google debit cards in person, by mobile or online. Co-branded bank partners currently include City and Stanford Federal Credit Union, a sentence most people thought they would never hear us utter here. The product will allow Google to split interchange fees with its partners and could even use transaction data to improve targeting. When contacted for comment, Google confirmed it has started making inroads into the checking account space. So for a little background, Google launched the Google Wallet debit card back in 2013. That is 2013, that is seven years ago, but shut it down three years later. Account security is likely to include fingerprint and PIN authentication. So, all right, Google, what, what are we thinking there, Simon? They just, I love Google, right? I'm, I'm, yeah, we I'm, know. I'm a, I'm, a, we know. I'm, a, I'm a Pixel phone owner. I almost refuse to own an Apple device to a fault, but yet I got to call them out on this. They just cannot get their stuff together when it comes to payments in the way that Apple has. Um, and, and that's been consistent. I think Apple has really got Apple Pay very, very right. Um, it's got the, it, they were the first to really uh, figure out the the contactless piece. You know, mobile pay is growing year on year in the US and they've, they've kind of got the e-commerce side of that figured out. And the interesting thing about the Apple Card partnership to me was not only how they built the PFM, but who they partnered with specifically behind the scenes with it being Marcus, which is a very, very new platform from Goldman, which was more or less Greenfield, whereas it looks like Google's having to find other partners that may not have the tech maturity to, that enables them to deliver and execute. So, look, this is a part of a broader trend. Big tech is coming into payments and financial services products. How they partner behind the scenes is going to be key. But more than anything, that experience they give to consumers, you know, is it going to be third time lucky? Because we had sort of Google Wallet and then we had Google Pay, which has some use, but not nearly as popular as Apple Pay. What comes next? And, and are they going to be able to use their data and, and make a difference for users? Or is this just going to be, hey, we're trying to collect that data and a privacy-conscious consumer doesn't want to adopt that? Yeah, I know that Michael Corbett from Citi um, uh, was talking a little bit about this. It was in the news today um, where, you know, we are, we're trying to look at, uh, Anna, you talked about this, the big banks. What are they going to kill? What are they going to delay? What are they going to de-scope? And uh, Corbett said, yeah, we're still all in on this partnership, you know, us and our big partner, Stanford Federal Credit Union, are still all in on this. I mean, Adrian, do you agree with Simon on this? You think uh, Google? Yeah, so so I, I am in a similar place to Simon, actually. I mean, I, I'm as big a Google fan as anybody. I, I 
spent you know six of the best years of my life working for them, and uh, I've actually worked on payments for Google in about two thousand and nine. So um, uh, even going uh, beyond uh, the time you mentioned, Sam. So um, I- I've seen Google in this area for for a long time, and basically, I think you know Google is a remarkable company. It's amazing at building certain types of software. It's got you know amazing deep um, computer science expertise um, in the company. I think Google tends to struggle when it comes to how does it play with other big companies in an ecosystem. Um, you know, it did it did Android, but that was through an acquisition and then making something open source that anybody else could use. Um, whereas, you know, how does it work with other giant companies? This is the sort of, you know, elephants and hippos trying to make kind of situation, isn't it? It's never particularly elegant and i think i think others just because it's google doesn't mean they're going to win google has had you know i think there's seven google products that have more than a billion users each so it's had some massive successes but it's also had a whole string of failures so just because it's google doesn't mean um it's 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 invincible so yeah i'm something of a skeptic on um on whether they're going to really make this work hey i loved google wave Oh, here we go. I, I don't have any like super insightful uh, thing to say here, except for I, I don't think I can take another like debit card. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I have like nausea. When I, 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 so I clicked and I was like, oh God, no, no, not another one. Like I, I'm like, there needs to be a significant differentiator here. Like it's just, now you're like literally like, oh, it's just the debit, like, I don't know. Like, I think if they prove that they have something that's really cool and great and is much better than what a bank is offering, or perhaps they are truly focusing on the unbanked. And I'm extremely skeptical that anyone is truly focusing on the unbanked because there's reasons why some they're not getting banked. Then I'm like, I right, please leave me alone. Like, even if someone off, like maybe Google's Google. So if they told me we're going to give you the story, I'd be like, sure, but. If not, I'm like, no, not another fancy debit card. Please. Yeah, we get into the so, same conversation about, I mean, the, the recent news of Monzo's now, you know, applied for their banking license in the U.S., going to open up an office in San Francisco, N26. I mean, we can do this all day, right? Naming companies. Although Google is Google, right? I mean, Lance, what do you think? Look, I think they need to differentiate themselves. And it really, to me, comes down to the data of how they're going to use it more than uh, whether they're going to share the interchange or not. I don't think any of these companies, even Apple, are doing it for the interchange. The movement of money is being commoditized to some degree. There's downward pressure on pricing for the moving money. It's just getting easier and faster. So it's about data and Google's experts in data. So there's a great opportunity. Everything else that was in that leak, it wasn't wasn't really an announcement, was incremental innovation. So until, you know, I think Adrian made a great point about Google and ecosystems. There's an opportunity here to flip open banking on its head to go in and, and instead of just the fintechs taking their data, taking the banks, the customers' data out of the banks and, and improving it, why can't it go in reverse? And, and, you know, Google could be collecting this and then building an ecosystem around it. And they've got this opportunity with everything we do. It's just going to take consumer buy-in as much as anything of being comfortable with what you're sharing there. I, for one, you know, uh, love the improvement in the analytics they've got. They've got the best, you know, AI and ML out there. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, what's going on behind the scenes is 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 also, you know, they've been do, they've been going after kind of these partners that they could, could build upon that uh, with the mainframe businesses moving into Google Cloud. So there's there's a lot of potential for synergies across the whole Google platform with this. 
You know, the one thing I think um, I'm going to give myself the last word on this one. I haven't done that yet. Um, but I do think one thing I see with the bigger players like Google, like Stripe, even like Robinhood and the others, I think coming out of this, they're going to acquire a hell of a lot of talent. There's a lot of talent out there. Um, more and more. Right. I mean, we've seen, you know, we talked about this earlier with with um, Lending Club and the layoffs there. Cabbage, I think 90 percent of their staff. I mean, we're going to see a, a companies folding up. Um, a lot of talent's going to come out there. And I think some of these bigger players are going to do extremely, extremely well there. So that's that's the Sam Mall fearless prediction. Um, and that is not investment advice. All right. Our last story, folks. Um, and finally, I love what we call this segment. And finally, Shake Shack is returning $10 million from SMB loans. This is a story coming out of NBC News and basically all over Twitter. The fast casual chain received the money through the Paycheck Protection Program. The PPP is designed to keep workers on companies' payrolls and ran out of funding only two weeks after launch. We started this whole show talking about this. Shake Shack was one of about a dozen companies that received funding despite making hundreds of millions in annual revenue. Shake Shack's founder and current CEO said they applied for the loan after they found out of the program was open to business with less than 500 employees per physical location. Devils in the details. Shake Shack met that criteria. The pair blamed the PPP's confusing rules for the application and promised to send their funding back. Shake Shack returned the money after acquiring additional capital through equity transactions. Um, All right. So we're about to have another round happen. I don't think we're going to hear another, hopefully not Potbelly or Shake Shack or whatever else getting these. But um, I mean, what's the take on this? I mean, the thing with Shake Shack, right? Denny Meyer, the the founder of it, um, um, founder of a lot of great restaurants and a great book that he wrote, which is all around customer service and understanding the customer and doing that. Not not a great story for them right now. No, but at least a burger is still. Uh, it's probably uh, you could probably afford a <laughs> no. barrel of oil um, for for what a Shake Shack burger costs. So, I what's mean, a barrel of oil it, go for now? Uh, I think it was what minus thirty eight dollars or something. Futures, futures. Yeah, yeah, that's it's kind of nuts. But uh, that aside, it made me wonder. You know, like these these um, rules are very confusing. And because they've then gone and raised equity, I think we'll see a lot more businesses do that, including the banks, of using equity as a way of driving cash flow. And uh, there is this kind of difficult position between um, being a, a very, very large business who can raise equity, the very, very small businesses who, in theory, have some support from the uh, from the uh, kind of loans that being given out by the, the U.S. government, and then this frozen middle. And we hear that a lot. And, and Shake Shack's kind of in that space where, like, how much equity can they really give away and how much longer can they stay in business? How much longer can they survive the market they're in? But, you know, every time I hear the name, it makes me hungry. So um, we're not sponsored by them. I just I'm genuinely hungry. I came into the podcast hungry and I'm still hungry. I'll reach out to Denny Meyer and try to get a sponsorship. Um, did any of you see the story in The New York Times? Um, I think it came out today. It might have been yesterday about kind of the two tiered systems with the big banks when you're applying for PPP. I know, Anna, you're not in your head, right? Which was basically, if you're like a Shake Shack or if you're a well-funded, well, a large organization, you got one. It's like boarding on Emirates, right? You know, if you're first class or business class, you get one entrance. Everybody else, congratulations, and you go down that other path. And that's kind of what we saw in the first round. And I've said early on for the for the banks, they have an opportunity, unlike 2008, where they were the villains or considered the villains in this situation to be the heroes. And um, some of these stories that are coming out aren't great. I mean, Adrian, mm. 
Yeah, I think companies just need to be really careful and remember that all of us in businesses rely on popular consent. You know, we're, we're not politicians who get voted out, but ultimately society gives these privileges to all companies, not not least limited liability, which isn't you know something to be taken for granted, but it's something we all kind of rely on. Um, so we rely on popular consent, and 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 we shouldn't mess around with that. And if we start you know abusing the spirit of the rules that governments are making, we're playing a very very dangerous game, particularly with populist leaders popping up around the world. So I think we want to really be careful here as as business people and play by not the letter but the spirit of the rules that are that are being made for you know very good reasons in a very tough situation for the world. Yeah, I mean we've I've been harping on the word empathy over and over and over again, right? Um ethical behavior, empathy and everything else. Um Anna, one thing I thought that was interesting, I I was talking about this on a on a sh- on one of the breakfast shows. We have a breakfast show everybody. Fifth fifth shameless plug everybody, breakfast show at 10:30 US. Um, but one of them, I was talking about this, and I actually said, good on Denny Meyer and the team for giving it back. And the, the, I can't remember who I was talking with, but they said, uh, screw them. Instead of giving it back, why did they just, they had the money, take the money and set it up as a charity and immediately fund instead of having put people back through the the, was, the washing machine for this. Yeah, I was having, it's not strictly right, but I was having a conversation with someone this morning. There, there's been, you know, rumors. I think there were stories about um Financial firms who have investments in companies thinking of getting the, the 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 loans themselves or getting support themselves. And, you know, if if you're a big private equity firm, obviously, if you hear that they've, they've gotten these loans, it'll be outrageous. But then, you know, they own all these chains of, of, of restaurants and bars. And so these are still normal people who will be left without jobs. So, you know, if you look at it that way, maybe you think, you know, it's not like a shake. Someone who makes burgers for Shake Shack is more well off than someone who makes burgers for an independent restaurant. Right. So, as you say, like maybe if they just given the money, like, you know, if, if the money had arrived to their employees who are home, then it would have helped. Some, yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely. I think that the story. Everything is so better. nuanced. Right. Like, I, oh. I guess. Yeah. These days. Um, still like in the end it'll it's obviously if the money goes to like invest in something else that the company is doing then you're a bit upset but if it's really trying to keep people uh getting you know just employees making sure that they have food on their table this month yeah well no, none of us are the head of policy but lance i mean and this next round and the tranche that's going to come after this i'm going to go ahead and make a prediction right now that this isn't the last go of this um, do, you, do you think we're really accounting for this or do you think we're going to hear more horrors? Well, I won't call it a horror story, but more negative press like this. Um, I, you know, <laughs> Shake Shack was not the only one that was doing this. Uh, Thank you. Ruth, Chris, Potbelly. There's, there's several. Yeah. I mean, it was in the, I think 365 million of kind of big, bigger companies, but you know, the truth is, is, is <clears throat> they weren't trying to get into small businesses that, you know, lobbyists did their job in DC and they made a carve out uh, for this for this opportunity, and they took advantage of it. And and being empathetic, I, you know, I, if they're investing in employees and things like that, you know, that's great. If it's to go into other purposes, that's not that's not what it was for. And I don't think it what the, I don't think that was their plan. You know, sadly, you know, it, they returned the money, but it can't the way that the rules are written, it can't go out to another, um, you know, another person, another bank, another small business. Um, it goes just you know back to the government. So. A lost opportunity to help other small businesses right here. So, I mean, what happened was, you know, to Adrian's point, you know, maybe with the letter of law, there, there was a the carve out, but when it came down to kind of 
doing the right thing from the spirit of love, public relationships. I don't see others doing this right now. Um, and, you know, we'll, 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 but if, you know, if times are desperate and you need to pay your employees, you know, that's a, that's a risk you're going to have to take with their PR. Yeah, I, I think one thing uh, that I do like about this next tranche is the $60 billion that was set aside for community banks um, and some of these lenders to, to distribute those funds because I know in talking to some of them, I mean, these loan amounts were like 25000 30000 You know, these aren't in the millions. So um, God knows. Um, here's the thing I'll be very curious about, the over-under on how fast this next money is going to be gone, right? Um, and, you know, how many – it took two weeks, I believe, for the first tranche, this one's going to be a matter of days and barely days, right? Two and a half, three days. It's going to be more on just can E-Tran and the other systems support that. That's going to be the kicker on that. And believe it or not, folks, we're out of time. That's how fast this goes. That wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all our guests. Um, let, if you don't mind, let us know where people can find out more about you and contact you. And Lance, we'll start with you. What's the best place to, to get a hold of you? Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter under going under the paymentologist uh, at underscore paymentologist and uh, equinix.com for the, uh, the website. Man, Ed, congratulations on getting that handle. That was, that was, it's not as good as at Jack, but that's pretty good. <laughs> Anna, best place. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm on Twitter too at Anna Herrera. Just email me. It's old school. Anna.herrera at thompsonreuters.com. Uh, Adrian? And I'm Adrian Blair on Twitter and uh, www.receiptbank.com. And Mr. Taylor. Uh, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or email me directly, simon at 11fs.com. As for me, at Sam Mall or 1030 a.m. on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others to find the show. Speaking of which, if you know someone who loves fintech, who is listening to Fintech Insider, pass the pod along and tell them about the show. Be a friend of the pod. If you have any suggestions or feedback, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11FS.com. Thanks so, so much. We will talk to you next week.